BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Celebrate the Chicago Reader. Join us to see the Reader come to life at our second annual On Gala, Wednesday, October 18th at the stunning Epiphany Center for the Arts. We'll have Reader-approved entertainment, including Grammy Award-winning Peter Cottontail and local rockers, The Trenchies, DJs, live art, and other performances. More details are at chicagoreader.com. That's chicagoreader.com slash on gala. Be there or be square. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, September 29th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back Chicago organizer, father, writer, interpreter, and translator, Matt ginsburg Jacile. The Ben Jarofsky Show is proudly presented by the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. You want to know the best places to eat, the best places to get drinks, all the news on what's going on in town, the political stuff? Head to ChicagoReader.com. That's a little tip for you. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, it's just as easy. Go to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. (laughs) We're calling this, what the hell's going on Friday? And here's why. Actually, we should call it Cram Ben's Brain. Friday, and here's why. Uh, of course, this is Oh, What a Week, and uh, the distinguished leftist, uh, Matt uh, Ginsburg Jekla, has so graciously agreed uh, to come on my show and take the deep dive on immigration. Now you go, Ben, there's a lot that happened in a week. We can't just talk about immigration. All right, just calm down, Chicagoans, all right? You're going to learn a little something today. We're going to tie everything together. We're going to tie it together with foreign policy? Local policy, national politics. We're going to tie it together. When you're done, we will have a solution to what is not really a crisis. It's an opportunity. Androvsky, the only person in the city of Chicago who calls what's happening in the city right now an opportunity. I'm not even in the city, by the way. I'm in an Airbnb in Los Angeles. So it's about a little bigger than a closet. <laughs> so, um, all right. Anyway, uh, before I bring on Matt, let me just point out something that happened this week. Uh, the Republican debate, presidential debate. I know my uh, lefty listeners, are, some of them, my lefty listeners refuse to watch the Republican debate, which I don't know, lefty listeners. I, I think you should watch it. You want to know what shapes your the world that you live in. You have to recognize that you the world that you live in is part of a larger world. Okay. And so you live in lefty land here in the city of Chicago. But politically speaking, there's something called MAGA that is essentially controlling national politics and is shaping the discourse, is shaping how how we respond to the issues of the day. Absolutely everything that's going on in the city of Chicago right now with busloads of Venezuelan immigrants being driven into Chicago 
uh, from Texas, busting to Chicago from Texas, is to a certain degree a byproduct of MAGA propaganda. The response of Democratic politicians is a byproduct of MAGA propaganda. The fear of Democratic politicians to welcome immigrants to our city, to say, wow, thank you, Governor Abbott, is a byproduct of MAGA propaganda. The reluctance of all our Democratic leaders to take a stand on this issue, to pretend as though it doesn't exist, is a byproduct of MAGA propaganda. It's all controlled to a certain degree by Fox. We're shaped. Uh, Donald Trump has gaslit the hell out of you, Chicago. You don't even realize it half the time. The, the world of options that we have, what is considered pragmatic, realistic options, is a world, an agenda, a list that is shaped by MAGA propaganda. To this point, on Wednesday, there was a debate. Republican uh, presidential nominees minus Donald Trump, who's decided for many different reasons, we're not going to discuss that in this particular show, we'll do that in other shows, that he didn't want to participate. And uh, at that debate, they got to the issue of immigration. And Nikki Haley, who used to be the governor of South Carolina, used to be Donald Trump's ambassador to the United Nations. Just think about this. Nikki Haley was the face that America put to the rest of the world. <laughs> at the United Nations. Uh, and she's considered the benevolent part. This, this is how insane this is. She's the benevolent part of MAGA. Nikki Haley, uh, at one point, to show how tough she is, said that what the United States should do is punish the countries from whom, from where immigrants are coming to our country. So think of it like this. Let's punish Venezuela. The overwhelming majority of immigrants coming to Chicago right now, being bussed in from Chicago. We learned this. We, Chicago has come to realize this. Took a while, but Chicago has come to realize this. The overwhelming majority of the immigrants coming from Texas to Chicago are Venezuelan. Nikki Haley's solution to this is to punish Venezuela for, like, what? Allowing its residents to come to Chicago? I or to Texas and to be bus to Chicago, punish them because people are leaving Venezuela. That's their solution. Not to be outdone, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is another uh, wannabe presidential uh, candidate. Y'all, everybody on my show knows about him. We've been talking about him forever. He already been to Chicago, Matt. I'm going to remind Matt. Uh, Vivek came to Chicago last year. He was trying to build a coalition between black people uh, and the Republican Party by trying to out-hate <laughs> every Republican, every Democrat in the world. He was like trying to unite South Shore residents, to get them to join the Republican Party and go, I hate the new immigrants even more than you do. I join you with I hate your hatred of the immigrants. Didn't really work. I think like 20 people showed up. No one's going to vote for you back in the city of Chicago, okay? No one. You're an embarrassment. Anyway, this dude said what we should do is take away, I kick out. I think he's a kick out. Like all the uh, immigrants in this country who are not citizens. I'm like, what, aren't you second generation? Didn't your parents literally just get to this country? That is like the fastest turnaround I've ever seen. I mean, usually it takes like Italians, Irish, Jews, I don't know, a couple generations to turn into MAGA. Dude, you just jump up one day and you're mad. Send them back. Send them back to India. <laughs> the guy's Indian. By the way, you notice he never said send them back to 
India. That's like his family comes from India. It's, it's always like he figured out that he figured out that like the like the weird calculus of MAGA America. Indian Americans are less despised by MAGA than let's say Venezuelan Americans. So he's like, send them back to Venezuela, but let the Indians stay. So that's, by the way, so that's what's governing this discussion and debate to a large degree, ladies and gentlemen. The stuff that went down, the rhetoric that went down from almost every single uh, Republican, including the moderate, I have that in quotes, Matt, the moderate in debate, Chris Christie. Chris Christie, former governor of um, New Jersey, who's running on the platform as the only candidate willing to state the obvious that Donald Trump is a crook and a fascist. That's his like claim to win over Democratic votes. They played a clip on a, of Ronald Reagan talking about amnesty for immigrants. Ronald Reagan, the former president, uh, millennials back in 1980. Just forget it. I won't take the deep dive history lesson. But he was extremely conservative, Republican. He is now considered, what, too liberal for the MAGA party. So that's the national sort of political overview of everything uh, that sort of controls, in my humble opinion, the debate and shapes the debate and shapes the policies. Matt, welcome to the show. Welcome back, I should say, to the show. And we have a lot to, to discuss and analyze on this issue, local, national, and international. But before we do, any thoughts? on the rhetoric employed by the Republican presidential wannabe candidates on Wednesday's debate. It's disgusting, cruel, and, and ahistorical. We don't need any new policy to start punishing the countries that immigrants are coming from because it is precisely the decades, some would say centuries, of punishment that has been the main feature of our foreign policy towards Latin America that is the reason they're coming here in the first place. I know we'll get into that more later. So it, the point being that the uh, the solution, in quotes, that Nikki Haley uh, uh, is uh, proposing would it just exacerbate the situation, make things absolutely worse than it already is. Uh, I would actually go so far as to say that's exactly what MAGA wants. If, MAGA, if you figure that MAGA thought this out, Matt, this is what they want. Yep. They want utter, total uh, chaos at the border that they could hype uh, on a regular basis on Fox TV. They want uh, immigrants to be able to, uh, enough immigrants to get across the borders that they can put them on buses and send them to Chicago, New York to cause turmoil and trouble and chaos in those cities. Yep. And then they watch in delight as uh, the Democratic Party just does, like, so, so afraid of swing voters in Wisconsin, your beloved home state, uh, or Michigan, that they don't quite know what to do. So they have come up with uh, half-ass ideas like building a tent city. I would say that would be the Matica political strategy. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, and it's important, I think, to point out that the foreign policy towards Latin America has not just been a Republican thing. It was a bipartisan policy under Obama, under George Bush, under Donald Trump, and now under Joe Biden. There's been uh, important differences, pronounced differences in domestic policy and a scary uh, similarity in, in foreign policy, particularly when it comes 
uh, to Latin America. But I would agree they they have no problem really because they think of people as political footballs with with the continued flows. It's useful propaganda tool for them. Xenophobia and getting people to be afraid of the other, afraid of the outsider, is really the the benchmark of right wing politics. Always has been, and even more so now uh, in this era of the scary rise. Uh, of the authoritarian right, they they love to see uh, people coming and therefore want to continue to to punish the countries that have already been punished. And I wouldn't really even use the word punish; it's more about plunder. We have been plundering Latin America for resources, plundering Latin America for oil, for cheap labor, for mineral resources uh, since the Declaration of the Monroe Doctrine and before, honestly. And and that has not stopped uh, right now. And so, if if we truly, if there was any truth to politicians actually wanting to stop the migrant flows. Well, actually, we could listen straight to Latin. You know, in Latin America, there's a movement called the right to stay. That'll blow MAGA people's minds and Democrats' (laughs) minds. There is a movement called the right to stay that says, we do not want to have to be in conditions where we have to migrate. You know, nobody, nobody who wants to get up and leave your home and go to an unfamiliar place, away from your friends, away from your families, much less do so by trekking through the Darien Peninsula, through jungles, through uh, territories controlled by drug traffickers, risking your lives and your children. Nobody wants to do that. Not a single person wants to do that unless you lack the means to see a real future for yourself, to survive where you are at. And if you look at why people lack those means, it is because of the bipartisan foreign policy uh, that was bad under Democrats, was exacerbated under Trump, and has been unfortunately continued under Biden to this day. That is the real reason that people are being driven to our borders. That was a great riff. And you know what? I had said we're going to hold off the foreign policy uh, till the end, but I'm going to be uh, like your beloved Aaron Rodgers and call an audible at the line of scrimmage. Uh, yes, I control the plays, not the coach, not Matt LaFleur. I am the man in charge. And we will deal with foreign policy first because I just think – you said it. I think you just set the table and we need to understand what is on the table before we can take like a deeper dive into what's going on in Chicago right now with, and now I will share my affliction, my dyslexia. I cannot get anything straight. So this worthless company that the Brandon Johnson administration at a low point, come on, Mayor Brandon Johnson, you know, this contract sucks. Game a $29 million contract to build a bunch of tents. But I always reverse it. So help me out, Matt. What's the name of the company? <laughs> Garda World. Garda World. What? You, I, mean, I want to call it World Garda all the time. <laughs> I just want to call it World Garda so bad, Matt. Garda World. What does that name even mean? We're guarding the world. Um, all right. Uh, so before we get to Chicago uh, politics, the political end of it, the uh, at the ongoing debate that's happening literally as we're having this conversation in Chicago City Council. Uh, why don't you just lead us through uh, a little history lesson here. And so as uh, we've now come to realize, Chicagoans have come to realize that most of the people who are being bussed in from Texas uh, are uh, from Venezuela originally. So what is going on between the United States and Venezuela that so many Venezuelans are crossing into the United States. Take it away, Matt. Well, I'm, first, I'm very glad for that audible. So I will gladly be your uh, Devontae Adams or these days Christian Watson in the end zone. Catch it and try to try to get you there. Um, so, you know, and the reason I'm glad that you called that is because I think that we get into, we make a grave mistake that does the rights work for them, that does the work of the powers that be for them 
if we focus on what's right in front of our eyes. If the discussion continues to be about um, who's going to put up the tents, or should there be tents or shouldn't there be tents, uh, or what kind of food is being fed at police stations, not to take away, by the way, from the importance of any of those questions, but if we take them out of the context that says, well, why are people being sent here from the border in the first place? And if we take that out of the context of why are people ending up at the border in the first place, then any response we have is going to play into the right's hand, it's going to be ineffective, and it's going to do their job for them of trying to destroy the political horizons of progressivism and, and, and those of us who believe that another future is possible. So let's take a history lesson about that, that bigger picture. So in, in uh, you, I mean, you can go back a long ways, but I'm gonna start the story in 1988, same year that uh, Richard M. Daley was elected uh, in the city of Chicago. Well, one year, just, he was elected in 89, but go ahead anyway. Go okay. Ahead. Uh, when there was what's called the Caracaso in Venezuela. So Venezuela, oil rich country in South America, uh, but that oil had always been in the hands of a small elite who basically kept it for itself and for its friends in the US uh, corporate world. So US oil companies were allowed to exploit with free reign, uh, take the national wealth of Venezuela, as long as they left enough for the elite to live lavish lives and the rest to live in misery. Uh, Venezuela, like many countries in Latin America, had been forced to take these bad loans from the World Bank, from the IMF, uh, throughout the 80s that imposed what's called structural adjustment upon them saying okay you can have the money uh, to solve your indebtedness but there with that money comes these strings and you have to do what's called structural adjustment you have to decrease government subsidies you have to cut back social services etc and so in response to one of those waves of cutbacks the population of venezuela rose up in what was called the caracaso uh, they took to the streets from the poorest to the poor neighborhoods, and they said, we're not going to stand by and be quiet as our lives that were already miserable get even more miserable uh, in order for you to benefit these international financial institutions, which, by the way, another Chicago connection, were mostly staffed by economists from the University of Chicago right here. Shout out my alma mater. Uh, they rose up. The response was the military went and opened fire indiscriminately. Uh, on the poorest of the poor neighborhoods in Venezuela, killing scores and scores of people and sowing the seeds for the beginning of what would be a political rebellion in Venezuela. I'm gonna skip a lot of history and just say that that, that set of events culminated uh, in eventually the 1998 election of the first politician in Venezuela's modern history, at least, that was not part of what's called the punto fijo or the, the two-party system. So like the US, power had always rotated between pretty much two political parties. Uh, who had surface level differences, but were essentially responsive to the same economic interests. Hugo Chavez comes to power from a poor family, from a rank and file military background, uh, with, you know, proud of his African ancestry, uh, and on a populist platform, essentially, and says that Venezuela is going to do something different. From now on, Venezuela is going to use our oil resources to develop our people. We're going to invest in social programs. We're going to invest in literacy programs. We're going to invest in food security, et cetera. And, and this is the kicker, we are no longer going to be puppets of the United States of America. Our oil is not for Chevron and ConocoPhillips and the rest of these oil companies. Primarily, our oil, our resources should be for our folks to be able to live a decent life and not just a couple of us, but the poor communities like the one I come from. I'm going to skip some history again, but let you know that from that point forward, Hugo Chavez became public enemy number one for the United States government through multiple administrations. There's abundant evidence uh, that when in 2002, there was a coup attempt to try to remove Chavez from power. The United States was aware of it ahead of time and conspiring as part of it under George W. Bush. 
people of Venezuela rose up against that coup attempt uh, and, and put Chavez back in power. There were continued efforts after that. We went to funding through the National Endowment for Democracy as part of our State Department to the tune of millions and millions of dollars, the Venezuelan opposition to try to sow seeds of discontent. Uh, and that funding increased the more the the more um, what was happening in Venezuela started to be seen as a threat to U.S. control of the region more broadly, with the election of leaders like Lula in Brazil, indigenous president Evo Morales in, in Bolivia, the Kirchners in Argentina, Bachelet in Chile, leaders who to different degrees and different stripes were willing to start saying for the first time in Latin America's history, essentially, from a presidential office, we don't want to depend on the United States anymore. We don't want to be subject to the policy dictates of the United States. We want Latin America for Latin Americans. Uh, and so things ramped up. Um, fast forward to uh, Obama. He began implying, putting sanctions, uh, more targeted sanctions on the Venezuelan government. In 2013, Hugo Chavez dies. Uh, I will say at the point at which uh, Hugo Chavez passed away from cancer, uh, Venezuela had outpaced pretty much the entire region in reductions in poverty, uh, in reductions in inequality, in increasing um, the, the standard of living for folks. And so that made it pretty hard for the US to covertly or overtly undermine. With the assumption of power of his vice president, uh, bus driver and former union president for the bus drivers, Nicolas Maduro, the US recognized an opportunity. Uh, his leadership was not as strong or as respected. Uh, oil prices were fluctuating. Uh, the opposition saw its moment and began a series of violent street protests. They were literally because supporters of the government tended to be um, more from Afro-Venezuelan communities and darker Venezuelan communities. There was literally opposition protests, primarily at first, at least uh, in the in the whiter and richer sections of, of Caracas, where if, uh, where black Venezuelans would pass through, they would be mobbed upon and burned to death in the streets under an assumption that because of the color of their skin, they must be government supporters, right? So this is happening. And this is the opposition we were funding. We still were funding, right? And yet, despite our funding of that, despite the weaker leadership of, uh, of Maduro, despite the fact that the, that the new government in Maduro had some very severe problems also, right? Very, uh, that we could go into, but it's kind of beside the point when it comes to US policy. Uh, despite all of that, they were unable to remove him. And so Trump comes into power and says, all right, you weak liberal Obama, I'm going to show you what a real U.S. imperialist does and imposes sweeping sanctions uh, in, in 2019. In 20, even before that, in 2017, he was meeting with the military leaders to say, let's try another coup again. Uh, he recognized an unelected member of Congress as the president of the country. Juan Guaido said, you're the president of Venezuela, and we're going to tell the rest of the world they have to recognize you. Um, and and like I said, and then this culminates in 2019, the imposition of sweeping sanctions. Now, for those who say all the Venezuelans that are coming here, and stats show it's somewhere between two thirds and up to 90% of those, at least in the city of Chicago, who've been busted in from Texas recently. For those who say, oh, this has nothing to do with the US, uh, this is just about them fleeing a bad regime, a corrupt regime, et cetera, et cetera. Explain to me why from 1998, until 2001, there were no mass waves of Venezuelans arriving at the U.S. border. But from 2019 to the present, you started to see double, triple, quadruple, exponential increases in those numbers. It's because it's a direct consequence of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. Today at the uh, committee meeting of the Committee on Immigrant and Refugee Rights, shout out Chairman Andre Vasquez, uh, all the women, Jesse Fuentes pointed out, 
that there are 150 different U.S. sanctions being imposed on Venezuela to try to cripple and force regime change on that country. So I guess I'll, I'll wind up the history lesson there and say to Nikki Haley uh, to say, you're already punishing and you know darn well that you're already punishing Venezuela. That's why folks are here in the first place. It's actually the exact opposite. If there's any slip bit of truth in any way anybody is saying about not wanting migrants to come here, just like migrants themselves don't want to have to be forced there, it starts with stopping the punishment, stopping the plunder. That's a great riff. Uh, I will just add my own little twist to it, uh, which is, uh, I just have to, I felt compelled to add this. Uh, Chavez loved being public enemy number one. Okay, I, he he luxuriated. He, he You forget, man, we went to the, his speech at the, uh, what was it, the UN? Yeah. yeah, he goes, I smell the sulfur. It was like right after Bush. So he, come on now, he loved being public enemy number one. Yeah. All right. So let's, that's, that's ancient history. We will, I just had to say that. I had a, it was a great rip. I had it, but I just had to add that. Yeah. But uh, to your point, and this is an excellent point going forward. So if you want to end the influx of Venezuelans to the United States, because you st you your your worldview is that we the people of the united states are incapable of handling that influx which is by the way a whole other discussion that i take tremendous issue with uh it's more gaslighting by maga that democrats have willingly embraced yeah but so i'm going to put that to a side matt because we can't deal with every freaking issue in this one humble little show but if you just if you work with the assumption which seems to be the reigning assumption here uh in chicago and illinois and in new york eric adams i see you too uh where it's like it's too much we're overwhelmed then the first thing you need to do is to change the conditions in venezuela that are prompting so many people to leave venezuela i have to think that Nikki Haley understands that uh, in, in just the most basic sense, because she's a smart human being, all right? So she's choosing, she's choosing, she's making a very conscious decision to continue a policy that will only exacerbate a situation that is benefiting her politically. Yep. And the Democrats have at some point got to stand up and not be such cowards on this issue and not be so worried about swing voters in Wisconsin and Michigan who may be watching Fox TV and take their own stand. And I, I believe that's where we're at right now. Every, Matt, I tend to do this on every issue, every critical issue that this country faces, race relations, climate change, Fascism, uh, <laughs> obvious fascism by from MAGA, uh, Donald Trump's just flagrant violation of the law, threatening judges, threatening juries. Every issue is ignored or exacerbated by MAGA. And then you have the Democrats trying to figure out a way to st stitch together some half-assed response out of fear that they're going to lose. <laughs> 
All the, every lesson that Rahm Emanuel and David Axelrod and Barack Obama told him, we need those swing voters in Matt's beloved home state of Wisconsin or we'll lose everything. <laughs> and that, and that is, I, to me, this is just another example of that. Your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, the, that's why I wanted to st- make sure to emphasize there's a deep democratic complicity in this whole situation, both because of the foreign policy piece and because of the lack of a backbone to stand up. You know, the, the, the Democrats sadly took this, as you know, neoliberal turn, what I'll call, so a turn, uh, you know, really from the eighties onward, uh, where they embraced saying the free market is the solution to everything and where they cozied up to corporations, where they distanced themselves from, uh, from major unions, uh, and, you know, still wanted the union's money, but didn't want to do anything to truly stand up for working people in this country. And so they know that they know they're deeply duplicitous in this, in both the policies that created this and, and connected. Uh, and so, and so they are afraid to bring these issues to light because they share complicity in it. Uh, and cause they've been indoctrinated by the Rahm Emanuel school of politics that says, uh, it's all about the, the, the suburban, uh, white women voters and, and not about poor and working people. Uh, across this country. And so, you know, and I'll just tag on one last thing. So where is the hope in all of this? Not all Democrats are the same, right? And we have this budding, beautiful, uh, fledgling, but strengthening uh, independent political movement in Chicago and other places, but in Chicago, where we've reached the furthest, I think, of, of anywhere, that says, you know what, we could do things differently. We can grow a spine, we can stand up, and we can proudly say, the market is not the solution to everything. We're going to use government to serve the needs of the people. And so when you zoom all the way in, and yes, that it, as in the learning process, that is that political project uh, that has reached the stage of electing a mayor to the city of Chicago, there will be mistakes made. There will be decisions made that folk have disagreements with. And if we focus in on that, uh, we are undoing any possibility of breaking either with the spinelessness of the centrist and liberal Democrats or with the true uh, right-wing, white supremacist, racist, fascist threat folks that are dominating the the Republican Party. All right. I, I respect my guests and I allow them to say what they want as long as they respect me. And I'm not backing off. That contract sucks. It's a terrible contract. And I'll, I'll be the one lefty in Chicago. All the rest of them, Ben, be nice. Be nice. I'm sorry. I can't. It, it turned my stomach uh, when I read the, the newspaper about it. All right. Uh, I just want to say one thing when you were on that riff, you know, the funny thing when you said the free market and all the Democrats, they buy into this stuff. There's Dems who buy into the free market rhetoric. Uh, I have to laugh, Matt, because there is no free market anywhere right. in the universe. And just look at the NFL. If you want to see uh, that there's no free market, the biggest capitalists in this country are benefiting from a contract that caps the amount of money labor can make so there is no free market anywhere uh and this whole to to your history lesson when you strip it down the influx the crisis i have it in quotes again uh of venezuelans fleeing to this country is a direct effect of government intervention yep United States government slapped sanctions on Venezuela, pausing. They intervened in a free market. Okay, they that's intervened right. in the market. That's right. That's right. And and you know that's I think a really really key point. When people ask, well, where's the money uh, for for reopening our mental health clinics? 
well, where's the money for building housing? Or where's the money for addressing community safety in the south and the west sides and the rest of the city? The money was sent to the Venezuelan opposition. The money was sent to prop up dictatorships in Latin America. The money was sent to Afghanistan and Iraq and all these other wars. That's where the money is. We have a common enemy here and there. And that, and that common enemy, unfortunately, has been successful at dividing and conquering us. All right, let's go uh, to the update. You're my uh, reporter. Uh, you've been following dutifully uh, uh, Andre Vasquez. Uh, by the way, every, I urge everybody to check out the conversation I had with him about a week ago, uh, <laughs> where he was so cool, calm, and measured, and I was ranting and railing. It's actually kind of funny in a way. Uh, but um, so uh, his committee—I forget the name of it. Once again, dyslexia kicking in because uh, I'm going to reverse a whole bunch of words. Uh, but uh, I call it the Immigration Committee. Uh, uh, I would urge everybody to listen to the um, the interview because uh, we talk about the absolute um, worthlessness in many ways of the city of Chicago on this issue. They created a committee that was intended to do absolutely nothing except enable the former chairman, Ariel Robroyas, to hire some staffers. They didn't have a meeting for over a year, Matt. They didn't have a meeting for over a year. As people, busloads are coming in from an exit. They're not even having a meeting. Yeah. Uh, so we are sometimes our own worst enemies anyway uh andre's taking it far more seriously he's actually holding meetings he's providing information so shout out to andre uh for uh, taking charge but today there was a there was a meeting and uh i don't know maybe my favorite alderman jt had something to say the great jeanette taylor at the 20th ward I hate to say she's my favorite alderman to show favoritism but She's one of my favorites. Uh, so why don't you be our reporter and tell us uh, what went down at today's uh, committee hearing? Yes, and I believe it is still going on. Uh, I interrupt my live coverage of the uh, committee hearing uh, in order to to join the uh, my featured spotlight here on the, the Ben Jarofsky podcast. But um, it is this is a heated issue, you know, and uh, there was a lot to be heard. So the it was it's the, it's the committee on immigrant and refugee rights. Um, Chairperson Vasquez called the meeting. Uh, in order to discuss the various, but uh, get a status update. Um, it was attended by, and there was presentations from uh, a, a variety of the actors involved. So the Office of Emergency Management, OEMC, who has been sort of largely charged with the logistics um, of, of the city's humanitarian efforts, uh, representatives from uh, mutual aid groups, including the police station response teams that have been feeding uh, migrants at police stations and, and some of the shelters in different places, um, representatives from, of course, the, the city council and from the mayor's office, um, uh, the commissioners or the, the deputy mayor, as well as the first deputy mayor for immigrant refugee rights, um, Beatriz Ponce de Leon and, and uh, Rehuenses, um, uh, and a number, number of others that I'm probably forgetting. And essentially, you know, there was a presentation uh, from all these different groups. There was very open, just transparent discussion about the real humanitarian crisis that is being lived through in the city of Chicago and its repercussions. Um, and to the fact that this is just going to get worse, at this, uh, that there are um, until until there is massive intervention from the federal government, I should say. Uh, there has been, uh, yesterday they were saying they were expecting five buses, that became nine buses by the evening. Uh, it looks like uh, there's 15 more buses expected this weekend. There are hundreds and hundreds of more. There's 15,000 that have arrived thus far. Uh, as you know, they're escalating the numbers of buses they're sending and will almost definitely continue to do so until the Democratic National Convention next year to try to guarantee they have bro broken Chicago, divided and conquered folks, broken the budget. 
uh, and made sure that they get the, the news footage that they're looking for during the DNC of, of Venezuelans sleeping on the streets of Chicago. Uh, and so that was essentially the testimony was about the different parts of that. There was testimony from medical professionals who've been servicing migrants, talking about the dire conditions, talking about people who were cut on razor wire at the border uh, or on the ways way up here who were had a bandage that slapped on it and now have infections and uh, um, and had not seen real medical professionals until until they got here. And there was a lot of frustration expressed uh, both amongst those who presented. Uh, as well as, of course, from a number of people in the audience and the council members that were in attendance. Um, very understandable frustration from a, a variety of perspectives. Frustration about uh, about all levels of government not doing more. Frustration about coordination. Frustration about the scale of things. Frustration about unpaid labor uh, and the burden that's been placed upon that. Frustration, of course, about the Garda World contract uh, and about the use of private contractors uh, in the midst of that. Um, it really came to a head. There was a moment where the, the meeting had to recess uh, as it was being uh, interrupted by very angry residents. I, um, I didn't catch which community, I think from Inglewood uh, or South Shore, um, talking about, uh, about the ways in which the Black community in the city of Chicago has always been left last and that there's a mass mobilization of resources to try to get a grip on, on this humanitarian uh, endeavor or situation. Um, and, uh, and meanwhile, you know, we have an ongoing crisis that has existed for decades, uh, particularly affecting the Black community um, when it comes to when it comes to uh, violence, displacement, housing precarity, food insecurity, etc. Uh, and so, sort of pitting those, un unfortunately, pitting those two things together. And that's where uh, all the women, Jeanette Taylor, someone whose campaign campaigns I have worked on, uh, who I agree is uh, one of our one of our fearless fighters in the city council, really spoke her truth as she is wont to do. Uh, both sort of validating the the outrage and frustration of of uh, South Side and West Side residents in attendance, uh, frustrated about perpetually being at the back of the line, uh, while also uh, uh, expressing her frustration really with all levels of government, um, and particularly I think honing in on on the Vendorovsky point number one when it comes to these contracts of of well why aren't people uh, being contracted in mass from the black community, from the communities, uh, black and brown communities here who, uh, who need jobs, who need resources in, in order to do some of this work that we're hiring private contracts for. There was a really, I think, um, in, important exchange that took place after her, her questioning uh, where the city really laid out, A, this is from the mayor's office, uh, laid, laid out you know, the sharing of that frustration the frustration with uh, the system that they inherited, that it was described as a broken system of procurement where it takes six to 18 months to add new contractors to the city of Chicago. Uh, and, and where, and where because in addition to that long delay, there's also the historic disenfranchisement uh, of the communities we're talking about. There's not folks that are already through that process, ready to take up the scale uh, of what's needed in response to the buses that are coming and how, Sadly, tragically, uh, outragingly, shockingly, perhaps the one, the only option they have because they don't have six to eighteen months to wait before people start freezing to death in the streets, given the numbers of people that are coming, uh, was to use was to piggyback on a state contract that the state of Illinois uh, entered into in order to forego that procurement process. Uh, and so, you know, it was it was laid out also within the hearing uh, a couple things that might be interesting for listeners to hear. 
that the total federal, if you exclude the pass-through funds through the state, if the total federal uh, commitment to help alleviate the situation has been 21 million, which is a tenth of what the city of Chicago has spent. The city of Chicago has spent about $200 million on this, has opened up an average of one shelter every eight days. One shelter every eight days. The state says, uh, oh, we're gonna help you with opening up shelters. They've been working on one shelter since May that has yet to open at a CVS property uh, in Little Village. Meanwhile, the city is opening up one shelter every eight days. People ask, well, why aren't we getting rid of the contractors and moving it to community-based organizations? And there was people reporting back on that has been underway in record time. Almost never in the city of Chicago do you see a request for proposals to take on major city operations uh, go through in, in three months. And one did in order to begin to undo some of the contract from with favorites staffing that Mayor Lori Lightfoot entered into that's been who's been contracted to run the existing shelters that they have and begin to hand that work to local community-based organizations with roots in the various communities. Um, uh, and uh, and so yeah, that's that's sort of the uh, that's what was laid out. That's that's a little piece of what was told. You know, all of all of your favorites uh, uh, spoke out. You heard some from uh, Scotty Waggis Pack and Nick Spasato. You heard some from Maria Haddon. You heard some from Jesse Fuentes. You heard, of course, from the chair. You heard from um, uh, all the women, Jeanette Taylor. And I think you know what united everyone uh, to the extent that there was one thread that really ran through is that there is a need for uh, for the state and really for the feds to step up in a way that they have not stepped up. Um, and uh, and that's, yeah, that's that's your report back live from the- uh, Excellent, excellent job. You should, you should go to work for local TV. That was very well done. Ladies and gentlemen, I, the, the dude was just riffing. I could see what he did. He was just like, unless you cheated and had notes somewhere, which I didn't see, uh, that was a straight up riff of exactly what, oh, he did. <laughs> Keep your secrets, man. Don't, no, no, don't share your secrets. He did have a few notes, but uh, but they were like chicken scratch. All right, so uh, as long as we're doing history lessons today, let me add mine. I've been around Chicago a little bit, Matt, you know, so I know a few things about Chicago history. Uh, and uh, I'll start by saying I absolutely agree with the overlying theme of this show, which is that uh, this is a moment where the Democratic Party has got to get together on the national level, the state level, and the local level. Now, they're doing it, by the way, interestingly enough, when it comes to the Democratic National Convention. I sent Matt a little piece from uh, Shia Kapo, shout out Shia, uh, that ran today about how uh, they there was a uh, lunch, I think it was at the United Center, where they had steak and martinis and all these kinds of delicious things. I wish I was there. I was not invited, neither was Matt. Uh, and they're plotting and planning uh, for have a great party uh, to uh, help uh, Joe Biden uh, be renominated to run against Donnie Trump, I presume that's who the, de the Republicans will uh, pick. So it's all it's all everybody on deck for that one. <laughs> but in this one, you got J.B. Pritzker making accusations about the Brandon Johnson administration. You got Carlos Ramirez Rosa proving why, demonstrating once again why he was the world's greatest debater at Whitney Young High School by firing back on X. And I'm not going to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that X used to be Twitter, even though I just told you that, because you know that by now. Uh, so Democrats doing what they do best, fighting among each other. <laughs> Heck of a job, Democrats, as opposed to just uniting, as Matt told you how to unite. So just listen to Matt. Call Matt. He'll tell you what to do. <laughs> Now, I'm going to deal with the local and get your response to this. Chicago, you are so full of it. And I don't really know how to say it anymore. You guys are the biggest hypocrites. 
You, you don't pay attention to your history. You say one thing one day and say the next thing the other day. It was just four years ago, Chicago. Every single one of you, no, maybe I get my dates mixed up because time passed six years ago. Every single one of you were like little cheerleaders, pom-pom squad, cheering on your little mayor, Rahm Emanuel, and your little governor, Bruce Rauner, as they offered how much to Amazon? How much? Matt, I will never tire of saying this because when I hear this phony debate about how we can't handle a few hundred busloads, oh, and every day they go, there's more buses coming. Good. I welcome the buses. What was it, what, five, six years ago? 5,000? They were going to have Amazon employees come to the city of Chicago? Two billion at least? They were going to pony up two billion at least, Matt. Two billion at least. They wouldn't even tell us. And they had the prime real estate ready to turn over to them. Give it. Which was added to the cost because it would be paid for with TIF dollars for Amazon. Now, why is it city of Chicago? Why is it when you thought about a future where 5,000 Amazon employees were showing up to town, when you were willing to pay for it, subsidize that, you welcomed it and said, we're a city of big shoulders. We're a city of no small dreams, Daniel Burnham. <laughs> but when it's a bunch of Venezuelans on a bus from Texas, you're like, oh, I don't know what to do. It takes so long to get a contract and oh, put them in a tent. Where's the business community? Where are the housing developers? Where's all those? No, no, nothing but big plans. I get so frustrated, Matt, when I see the obvious inconsistency. When we welcome Amazon, open up, the, open up our wallets, and we did it with the Olympics too, so there's a whole history of this. But when it comes to some ordinary people, we're frightened. And I'll put something else out. In the same story, and the same today's uh, issue of the Sun-Times where they're, you know, we're scaring us with the notion of busloads coming in. There's a story about how the Chicago public schools, and uh, you're a parent of a Chicago public school kid, or you will be eventually really soon. So you're going to be dealing with this. Chicago public schools have to figure out how to raise money to fix their crumbling uh, facilities. And they go, well, enrollment's declining. Hello, busloads coming in the city of Chicago sometimes. Maybe you should add, you think about one story and then another story. You think about fortifying the tax base. We lost how many thousands of people? Why are we acting as if this is a crisis? I do not understand this, Matt. I don't understand the psyche of Chicagoans. I've lived here since 1981. I will never understand them. You talk about gaslit. They are gaslit by corporate Chicago to think of Amazon as a benefit and Venezuelans as a danger, dangerous crisis. Help me, Matt. Help me understand my fellow Chicagoans. Go. I got you. It's because it's not a question of psyche. It's a question of structure, right? We have an entire government system that is set up, as you know well, to benefit the well-connected, to benefit corporations, to set them up. So you say Amazon coming to town and we need resources to bring them here. There's a whole structure that has been perfected and refined over years, particularly since that neoliberal shift I told you about in the 80s and 90s, uh, that is ready, that has levers that can be pulled to grant those resources. And in order, precisely in order to set that structure up and make it that way, they have gutted defunded, if you will, all of the structures that would make it possible to probably for a lot less money uh, ensure we treat 
people, both those here and those coming with a basic sense of decency and humanity uh, and welcome them as the opportunity that uh, their arrival is, just like you say, I agree with you 100% there, if we set them up that way. It's, it's, it's a question of political will. And so we're in a moment now where we're four months into an administration that has said, we want to turn this ship around. We want to turn this structure. The entire thing was built to serve corporate greed. And we want to turn it towards human need. Uh, but the current levers that are on that ship are all give this corporation money, give these police money, give this, that. No, very few of those levers are about addressing that human need. So it's not a psyche question. It's a question of the structures that we have available that need to be dismantled and the structures that we don't yet have that need to be built. I, uh, I have to think about what you said, because I do believe it's a psychological thing. And I've been reading the rhetoric. I, it's And local Chicagoans buy into it. Local Chicagoans buy into it. Matt, I mean. <laughs> of course, of course. Like, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a there's an ideological or what you would call psychological component to it, right? Which is just white supremacy is basically what it is, you know, is it's some lives are, are, are valuable and welcome because because you don't even have to take Amazon, right? We've resettled 30,000 some Ukrainians since the start of, of, of that whole war. Uh, in a perfectly orderly, peaceful way with different municipalities taking them. The suburbs are taking them. It's not just one municipality out of the several thousand in the state of Illinois taking them. It's several of them that are taking them. They're being resettled. They're getting resettlement funds. They're being connected with agencies. It's happening, you know, uh, and, and that's in about the same span of time as the Venezuelans, but these Venezuelans are darker skinned. Uh, and so, and, and so they're, and they're coming into a country that was founded on white supremacy. So, uh, you know, that's, that's what it is. Well, that's, and by the way, shout out Juan Gonzalez, the interview we did at WBEZ. I believe it has helped change, slowly change the worldview uh, that media is having to this. Slowly, <laughs> you know, they're slowly uh, beginning to put some of these pieces of puzzle together. Shout out Juan Gonzalez. That was a great interview. And he pointed out about the Ukrainian summit. You're absolutely correct. I, 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 um, I implore my fellow Chicago just to look in the mirror. Just look in the mirror on this one. Uh, and I'll, I'll say this about uh, protesters from uh, the black community. Absolutely, wholeheartedly with you. I was talking to this with uh, Candace Castillo on the show the other day. I already told you she accused me of being like Mays Jackson. I urge everybody to check out that interview because it's on one level, it's pretty funny. Um, uh, but um, I, I just, it's to me unconscionable that the city of Chicago has never, ever uh, over the last 30 years uh, dedicated a um, its massive amounts of economic development money to help uh, fortify the black community. Instead, mostly the money is used to move black people out of Chicago. Uh, and uh, so I'm hoping that this quote unquote crisis, will, thanks to people like Jeanette Taylor, uh, will get, uh, I don't know, us to take an examine what I call the Alden Lowry question, the, the, the Alden Lowry, the great demographer WBEZ, who pointed out was one of the first to break the story about black people leaving Chicago in great numbers. And I remember the, the point I always loved to make when I was interviewing him, Matt, I said, Alden, why didn't uh, anybody do something about this? And he said, Ben, I don't think they thought of it as a problem. And uh, Alden <laughs> Lowry spoke truth. So here's what I say. I didn't see any huge protests from the black community when we were giving Amazon the money. I didn't see any huge protests from the black community when we were given on daily was writing a, a, a check uh, for the Olympics. What I see is people, a few, a handful of people screaming at a city council meeting now that it's some Hispanic Hispanics that may get it. That's so Chicago. It's like 
I don't care if you give the money to some rich developer for Lincoln Yards. Just don't give it to an Hispanic guy. Chicago, yeah. you have to look in the mirror, ladies and gentlemen. You have some issues. Go, Matt. Let, let me break it down like this with a metaphor that all of us in Chicago can relate to, particularly if you've ever driven on the 290 or the 9094 in rush hour. We're in a traffic jam. Black Chicago has always been at the back of that traffic jam. They don't know what's, a lot of them do know what's causing it, but it's not immediately apparent because they're so far back there. What's the root cause? What's up front, right? It turns out that whole damn traffic jam is because they have cut off and cleared the lanes out for some private jets, for some people that are making a whole bunch of money off of Latin American foreign policy, off of city of Chicago contracts, off of all levels of government, right? And you have now, finally, someone got into one of the cars that's maybe, let's call it second in line or third in line, right? Fed, state, city in line there that says, get the hell out of here. We're going to try to find a way around this traffic jam. And the people that are behind him right there, right in the middle there, uh, the, the liberals that have enough proximity to, to, to see a little bit closer to the, to the wreckage up front, uh, they're saying, oh, that guy in the third car back, it's his problem. And they're honking and they're releasing statements and they're releasing, right, it's et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, I don't really blame the, blame the people at the back of that traffic jam way back there for getting mad at every single person that's in front of them in that, in that traffic jam, because <laughs> we're all in front of them, every last one, right? I do get mad at the people that are in the middle there, including, unfortunately, some of the people that helped us switch one of the drivers that was in that third row there for getting mad and acting like we can't see right in front of our eyes what the real problem is here. You know what, if, if, you, if you want the third car back to be able to move, to have different options, to have different lanes to take other than what's been, then let's all get the hell out of our cars, walk up to that traffic jam, stop those private jets, clear out the obstacles and change the whole course of traffic. That's the way, that's the way forward right now. So, you know, we can, it's sort of like when you're sitting in that traffic jam and you hear people honking behind you, it's not like you just, it's not like you say, oh, thank you for enlightening me. I will now start to drive forward. I had just forgotten to do that, right? No, that's, that's actually a pretty good metaphor. I got to give you credit. Uh, and uh, no notes, by the way, on that metaphor, ladies and gentlemen, that I could tell. Uh, and uh, it does remind me of like, when you did it, I had so many riffs, uh, memories of being in traffic, some guy honking at me. Like I'm waiting for someone to turn in front of me while you were doing that. I can't turn, I can't go, because the guy has to turn. The guy behind me is honking his horn at me. I'm like, what do you want me to do? Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean uh, It just triggered that in my head. Relatable content. It was relatable, yeah, I see the world. That's, that's the power of metaphor, ladies and gentlemen. Poetry can help you understand the world and its many complexities. All right. Um, this has been uh, a very deep dive. Uh, just and by the way, the, just skimming the surface here of these very complicated issues uh, and uh, and how we're we're trying to deal with them in the city of Chicago. So let's close with a little uh, a more frivolous topic uh, that, of course, Matt and I could probably talk about for five hours, uh, and uh, that is our my beloved Chicago Bears. Uh, I must point out. Uh, that Matt does not share. Don't hold us against him, ladies and gentlemen. Really, don't hold us against him. I try not to. <laughs> Matt does not share my love for the Bears. Uh, Matt was uh, raised in the state of Wisconsin. That's why I made all those ref references to his beloved Cheesehead State. Uh, he was raised in the state of Wisconsin, and um, as such, he is a Packers fan. And uh, I'm feeling a little sorry for him uh, because the Packers were annihilated last night by the Detroit Lions in a game that exposed just how bad the Packers are. Uh, but it also exposes 
it also exposes it, it also exposes more to the point how bad the Bears are because as bad as the Packers are, okay, as evidenced by last night's game against Detroit, they still beat the Bears. <laughs> In destroyed the bears, destroyed the bears, <laughs> the crushed bear. them, demoralized them. Oh my goodness! Uh, the bears are so bad. So right now, the bears, as I point out every uh, sh- chance I get, are on the threshold of greatness. They could be the first team in the history of football to go zero and seventeen. There have been 0 and 16 teams before, but the season the season was expanded by a game. No team has ever lost all 17 games. The Bears were off to a great start. They lost their first three games, and each game was worse than the one that preceded it in some ways, as the Bears showed new and creative ways in which to be bad. Now, however, the challenge that the Bears face to make that 0 and 17 record will be on the field this Sunday in the presence and the uh, person of the Denver Broncos who are so bad they gave up 70 points last week so the worst team in the league (laughs) is playing the second worst team in the league in a battle to see who is god awfulest Matt who will prevail will the Bears win on Sunday and then keep alive their hopes of going 0-17 or will the Denver Broncos somehow be worse than the Bears and enable the Bears to be victorious. Don't duck and dodge. Go. So first, uh, a fact check. I did not grow, grow up in Wisconsin. I have my, my father's side of the family is all from Wisconsin. And unlike you Bears fans, we're not fickle. We pass it down. And in our generation after generation, we bleed green and gold no matter our geography. So that's Wait a minute. Hold it. My mouth just felt... You're- you're a Packers fan. You're not even from Wisconsin. I, that was always like your excuse for me. I would say I, I grew. I, I grew up uh, spending all of my Christmases and much of my summers in Wisconsin. My grandparents are Packers fans. I'm a Packers owner that was handed down by me. I have much family in Wisconsin, but no, I've never lived as far as permanent address. I've never lived a day in my life in Wisconsin. Where you? Where'd you grow up? Grew up in Colorado. Moved here when I was 18 and have been here since for the last 20 some years. Wait a minute, you. You've been more in Chicago than Wisconsin, and yet you don't root for the Bears? Because we're not fickle fans like you Bears fans. It's through the generations. We bleed green and gold. Wait a minute. Fickle fans? I am still rooting for the Bears. (laughs) You're rooting for them to go 17-0. Everybody just heard the riff, Ben. I heard it. (laughs) Oh, and 17. You got it. Your dyslexia kicked in. No, (laughs) oh, and 17. So that's the first facts check. The second facts check is I I believe I heard you referred to the Bears as a professional football team, which I think is a little bit of a dubious assertion at this point. And that leads to my answer to your your real question, which is, of course, the Bears are going to lose because as my favorite (laughs) song goes, the Bears still suck. So if they lose, they're looking good for 0-17. I think so. I think you have some hope there. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> oh, my goodness. You think the Bears will lose? To the, we'll, okay, here's the thing. The uh, Denver Broncos gave up 70 points last 70. I don't think that's been done in this century. 70 points. That's a lot of points, uh, lefty listeners who don't follow sports. So um, are the, so this team, this defense is horrific. Are the Bears capable of scoring two touchdowns against the worst defense in this century? I mean, we will see. We will see. <laughs> I, I do I do think, you know, the one thing I'm I'm allowed to swear on your show, right? Yeah. Uh, the, I think the one the one thing that the Bears might have going for them, uh 
to to turn around and get at least a couple of victories out of this this season is there's at some point comes a fuck it point where it's like Justin Fields is gonna say screw what the coaches are telling me I'm gonna I'm gonna play the way I know how to play football uh and and if that moment comes against the Broncos then yes I think they're capable of scoring two two touchdowns against them well, uh, not to burden our poor lefty listeners who don't care about sports with too much sports, the Bears' offensive line, which are the big people in the front of the quarterback, lefties, that those are like the big people that stand in front of the quarterback, and they protect the quarterback from the other big guys who are rushing to tackle the quarterback. That's basic 101 of football. You need good big guys up front to protect your quarterback, which is a fundamental of football that the Bears have not figured out. The Bears have only the oldest team in the NFL. They still have not figured out that you need good big guys up front that no matter what Justin Fields decides to do, he'll be running for his life. Yeah, that's true. Oh, Lord. Don't get me started. Matt, you're a good sport to put up with me uh, on Bears and Packers. Uh, and I urge everybody to check out the um, – it's really pretty funny. We don't even – we get political at the end. Moise Bawani, who's a diehard Bear fan uh, and knows more about football than me or Matt. I must say he's a football coach. Uh, and Matt, take the deep dive on the Bears and the Packers. It's pretty. I actually thought it was a pretty funny show. But also, I appreciate very much and thank you very much for that history lesson. And I, I'm going to bring you back for it because I do not want Chicagoans to lose sight of sort of how what is happening in our little town fits into a larger puzzle, if you will, a larger just a set of situations that are affecting us right now. We lose sight of that. And as you say, concentrate on just like the particulars. I don't know. We'll never, we'll never come to a solution. Do you agree with me on that? hundred percent. hundred percent. Very good. Matt, thank you very much for coming on the show. And I also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. I think Matt agrees with when I say this. Hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. Have a great weekend. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and a whole lot more at chicagoreader.com. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J Show, and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.